All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and, and Associate, Associate Justice Justices of the Supreme Court Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina All of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Hello, welcome to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office. In this episode, we listen to a 2018 interview with former Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Allison Duncan. Judge Duncan earned her law degree from Duke University School of Law. She served as an associate professor at North Carolina Central School of Law and served as a judge on the North Carolina Court of Appeals before being appointed to the Fourth Circuit bench. This interview is part of the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism's historical video series. Judge Duncan was interviewed by former president of the North Carolina Bar Association, Catherine Arrowwood. I'm here this morning with uh, Judge Allison Duncan of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm very much looking forward to talking with you about your background. And I'd love to start with having you tell us how you came to be a lawyer. I decided that I was going to be a lawyer at a very young age. My, um, my mother taught in the law school at North Carolina Central University uh, at a time when African Americans were really not welcome at uh, Duke, which was to become my law school alma mater. And I grew up, I would go to the law school after, after school and I would um, just crawl around the moot courtroom and, and try to lower myself in the book lift between floors, uh, getting stuck once or twice, uh, listening to the law students and just being enamored of them and their conversations and the things that they plan to do with their lives and what they could do with the knowledge they obtained. So I never really, I never really thought about being anything else. You must have crossed paths with some icons of the bar. Oh, it was wonderful. Maynard Jackson, who went on to become uh, mayor of Atlanta, Mickey Mishaw, who is uh, a figure uh, in the North Carolina legislature. People like that who went on to do great things in the profession. Uh, And it was wonderful uh, to have those as role models growing up. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your mother's influence on you. My mother was a remarkable woman for her time, and I occasionally wonder what she would be like, what, how much she would have accomplished had she been born later. Um, She went to college. She actually went to Hampton, which was my alma mater, and then she obtained several um, master's degrees in library science uh, because law school was discouraged for her, although she ultimately audited every course at North Carolina Central, but she taught legal research and writing. And so she used to actually edit my thank you notes. Uh, It was a very humbling experience, and I'm sure 
I resented it at the time, but have benefited from it since. She must have inspired a great love of books in you. A love of books and a love of words. I, she subscribed me to a Book of the Month Club, I think when I could barely when I could barely read, but I remember reading about Amelia Earhart and John James Audubon and great American fighter pilots of World War II. Uh, and it was, it opened my mind to what was possible. And given the constraints under which she lived, given that she was African American and a woman and handicapped, the fact that she never instilled in me any sense of limitation on what I could do is what I am most grateful for. So tell us a little bit about your career after you became a lawyer. What did you do first? I became, I went to Rochester, New York, and was an associate editor at Lawyers Cooperative Legal Company, which I, I remember naively thinking would involve writing. And it does, but only in a very uh, formulaic way. You probably remember the old ALRs? Oh, yes. Yes. So that was not quite what I thought it might be, nor was Rochester. So my father came, drove up to New York to pick me up, and we were driving home. And when we got to Pennsylvania, I made him stop the car so I could get out when we hit the Mason-Dixon line and say, as God is my witness, I will never live in the North again. <laughs> I have never seen snow drift over the tops of telephone poles, okay. or lake effect snow for that matter. So you must have found something else to do shortly Quickly, after that. <laughs> I clerked for a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals, Julia Cooper Mack, who was the first African-American woman to serve, as, to serve on what is the equivalent of a state Supreme Court. And um, she was my hero, uh, and I would still be clerking for her had she allowed that. But I learned a tremendous amount about being a lawyer and about writing and about being a professional from being around her. And how long did you work for her? She kicked me out after a year, <laughs> and I did the next best thing to working for her, which was to follow in her footsteps. She had been deputy general counsel at the EEOC, and so I went to the appellate division at the EEOC, where a lot of her mentors worked, and I enjoyed that very much as well. So were you making appellate arguments? I was, making, I was making appellate arguments right off the bat, and the, it, the nice thing, and I tell people now, the wonderful thing about, about government work is that it's so non-hierarchical. So I walk in and I get an argument in the Sixth Circuit, picking up on someone who had done the brief and left, uh, in far less time than it would take the ordinary associate to get his or her first deposition. Uh, and it was, it was wonderful because I was too young to know that I was supposed to be afraid. In a way, it was trial by fire. It was trial by but fire. you didn't know you were I didn't fire. know that <laughs> at the time. And so then you went to the EOC after that. How did you find working for a government agency? Well, remember when I went, the Title VII was still defining the limits of liability under Title VII, and we were, we were pushing the limits on gender discrimination issues in um, the pension benefits sector. So we had the um, 
defined benefits plans and the defined contribution plans and gender segregated actuarial tables and we were doing we were doing those on the front end and we had also just recently obtained jurisdiction from the Department of Labor over the Age Discrimination and Employment Act so we were looking like looking at issues like the mandatory retirement age for police officers and firemen, and um, it was it was a fascinating time to you be at really, the agency. Really, there during some of the, some of the most exciting work. I thought so. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it very much. And what did you do after that? Well, as is unfortunately likely to be the case in government, you sooner or later get promoted away from what you enjoy and what you are good at, what you think you are good at, into supervisory position. So I became um, acting associate legal counsel and then functioned, I think I was executive assistant to then Chairman Clarence Thomas, who had come to the agency and was looking for in-agency expertise. So he asked me to be on his staff. And then I became, uh, then I served as acting legal counsel. Uh, so I was there for about 10 years, and only about three or four of those were in appellate, and the others were in supervisory or special assistant roles. And what did you do after the EOC work? I'm an only child. My parents were aging, and my mother had muscular dystrophy, and her mobility was continuing to decline. So I came home, and I became a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I remember the first year I taught property and appellate advocacy. And I think I may have been learning, relearning property about a month, two to four weeks ahead of the students. <laughs> so I know at some point you went on the North Carolina Utilities Commission. I did, but remember I served on the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals first. Uh, and then ran to keep that seat and lost to my now colleague and good friend, uh, Judge Wynn. And okay. we still laugh about that. Uh, and then Governor Martin appointed me to the Utilities Commission, which was also enjoyable because at the time we were starting to look at um, electric utility restructuring, the deregulation in the generation sector. Uh, the Telecommunications Act of 1984 and opening up the local loop to competition. So it was an exciting time to be there as well. I want to go back to that year you spent on the Court of Appeals and the at the time to stay on the court you had to engage in a statewide election. That's right. right. And as you say your opponent was your good now very good friend Jim Wynn. Um, just comment on that a little bit. It was a different time wasn't it for judicial elections? When I look at I don't think well I I raised, the amount of money I raised doesn't even qualify as negligible anymore. You know, I would get donations of $20 and I would write little thank you notes because my mother didn't think that, she always said you had to write a thank you note. I remember writing a thank you note for $5 and complaining to her that it was more expensive for me to write the thank you note than the amount of the contribution and she reminded me it's not the amount, it's the gesture. So. Um, I can't even fathom, I can't get my mind around the amounts of money people have to raise now to run for office. It's a very different time. Well now then, uh, in, in, uh, while you were on the Utilities Commission, 
um, you remained active in bar association matters. Is that right? That's right. How do you say no to Rhoda Billings? That's that. That's all of us have had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, you became president of the North Carolina Bar Association. Eventually, I did, uh, and it was. I credit the Bar Association with giving me the opportunity to meet people I otherwise never would have gotten to know. I feel very blessed in that regard. And that answers the question I was going to ask, which is, what influence has the Bar Association had on your career? Um, it gave me um, leadership experience, because I think it may have been the first time I've led an organization of that breadth and uh, level of membership. And that was fun. And it occurred at a time, the, the anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education, which gave me a chance to explore the impact that the law has had on the lives of African Americans and others. So it dovetailed very nicely with a lot of the things I witnessed and experienced when I was growing up. and watching the African-American law students at North Carolina Central and the battles that they were facing. You know, as I recall that Brown versus Board of Education celebration, it was the 50th anniversary, mm -hmm. and you presided over an event that included not only lawyers from all over the state, but people from all over the country who were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. That was, it was just wonderful. People who, uh, well, of course, John Hope Franklin, who is next door. And please remind me of the name of Jack Greenberg. Mm -hmm. Jack Greenberg. Yes, yes, yes. Who, came from, who came from New York uh, and participated. We, I have to tell you one anecdote about that. Of course, we had no trouble whatsoever getting someone to represent Brown. That was not the problem. But getting someone to represent the Board of Education was a challenge. So I tried to woo my former law professor, Walter Dellinger, with the thought, well, think of how much fun it could be, no bites. But a young woman who was a law professor at Wake Forest took it on and did a magnificent job with what had to be an emotionally challenging now argument. And her, it was a wonderful argument, and her point was largely this is not, the law should not lead society. The law should follow society. And it was excellent, but there was this one particularly memorable line. She said, well, if you do this for African Americans, then you'll have to do it for women, and then you'll have to do it for handicapped people, and where will it all end? <laughs> and I recall she was very good. She was, no, she was exceptional. Yeah, she was terrific. Well, somewhere along in there, while you were serving as president of the North Carolina Bar Association, you got nominated for the Fourth Circuit. While I was president-elect, yes. I got nominated, and there was some consternation, but a past president assured the other past presidents that, that it would pose no problem because the process would take at least until I completed my past president year. But, but contrary to that comment, <laughs> you were confirmed quite quickly and unanimously, as I recall. Uh, the nomination went to the Senate just before I was to be sworn in as president um, at the Asheville meeting the next year. Yeah, and that was pretty extraordinary given uh, years of delay in appointments and confirmations, I should say, to that court. 
uh, and to the district courts in North Carolina over the years. I mean, it, that was fast. It was quite extraordinary. In fact, I remember telling uh, a friend of mine at the law firm, um, what was then Kilpatrick Stockton and is now Kilpatrick Townsend, that I was the latest in a long line of sacrificial lambs. <laughs> But you turned out to be the main. But I turned out. It turned out not to be the case, <laughs> yeah. and the timing was fortuitous in a way, because I got the call from the White House about my nomination hearing the following week when I was driving to Asheville for the bar association meeting, and they told me that they would send me some boxes of material to prepare for the confirmation hearing and I had planned to turn to those as soon as I got back from the Bar Association meeting Sunday night, I think it was. And I came home and there were about five banker's boxes of um, materials confronting me to read and I opened the first one and it was a part of the hearing, of one of the hearings on Miguel Estrada. And so I, or no, someone who had had a very bumpy and unsuccessful nomination process. So I put the top back on the box, pushed them all aside, and said, I'm going to have to wing this one. <laughs> <laughs> Which you did beautifully. Well, I didn't get, I did, to be fair, get six minutes of questioning. And the first question was a friendly question, which threw me, because I was looking for the hidden agenda. Finally decided, no, I guess there really wasn't one, and answering it as presented. Well, much like the judicial campaign you engaged in before, the vote to confirm you was 93 to zero. It was unanimous. It's a very different time now, isn't it? It's a very different time, and I, I, um, I regret that on behalf of, of my colleagues uh, and those who aspire mm -hmm. to the bench and those who are considered for the bench. I, I suspect that that call from the White House is not greeted with the same level of unalloyed enthusiasm that it might have been in some other time. Now let's talk about, since you've been on the Fourth Circuit, Chief Justice Roberts has gotten you involved in quite a number of, let's call them outside ventures, yes. uh, other than writing opinions and hearing appellate arguments. Tell us about that. At my, at my request, one could say beseeching and begging and pleading, he appointed me to the, North, to the International Judicial Relations Committee of the uh, United States Judicial Conference. The IJRC came into being after the fall of the Berlin War and the Wall and the dissolution of the USSR. And the United States began to be bombarded with requests from Soviet countries for training and information about the United States judiciary and its accompanying structure. And so the IJRC was created uh, to field requests that were beginning to come in from those countries, but it has since expanded. And we have been and had contact with judiciaries and governments from well from almost 200 countries around the world. It is amazing. I think last year I was on, well, I know I was in Asia and Australia on several different occasions, different trips, uh, meeting with one-on-one -on -one with my counterpart judges. And it has been it has been, I, I hesitate to say, I know that it is 
they tell me that it is a learning experience for them, but it is certainly no less a learning experience for me. I learn, I suspect, as leech, at least as much as I, as I impart knowledge. Talk about that a little bit, because um, you're in the process of talking with judges from other countries about our legal system mm -hmm. and how we bring justice and treat people equally and be fair to them, how we create a system in which that can happen. How is it that you learn something from that process? I have learned to be very grateful and very humble that I do not face the challenges that some of my colleagues around the world face when they are attempting to do their jobs. I have uh, Pakistani justices who are driven to work in armored tanks. They have had to withdraw their children from school and their offices are, and chambers are routinely swept for bombs because of the threats that they receive simply because they are trying to do their job fairly and administer justice fairly and adhere to the principles of rule of law. Um, so it makes me very cautious about complaining about anything in my circumstances because we are, by comparison, we are relatively privileged um, I have gotten to know judges in Myanmar, for example, and think of what they must face in the circumstances when you have a very strong military presence there, you have, um, you have a very decentralized government, limited power, central government, you have conflict on your borders, and yet they, tr they try to do the best they can under just mind-boggling circumstances and very little pay and relatively little recognition. Do you feel like the contact you've had with these other countries and the judges from these other countries has given you a different perspective in your work on the court? Less so my work on the court, but I think my outlook on my role as a judge. Um, although, as a judge, I think I've always been fairly open to the likelihood that I am wrong. Uh, I have been wrong often enough to not find it to be uh, a particularly troubling experience. I'm not, it does not bother me to acknowledge that I've learned since yesterday. And, and I do like the three-judge panel for that reason. I, I get to benefit from the perspectives of judges who see things very differently from me, although I respect their views. And the fact that we do it so collegially is something that I like and something that I understand is not the case on all circuits. And in fact, my law clerks have talked about, they talk, every year they'll say something to the effect of, well, our going to Richmond is like old home week. Uh, we're all hugging and um, glad to see each other. Uh, so I think that's, that's very nice. But, I live in a relatively safe and secure environment. There are the occasional death threats, but it's not a daily part of my life uh, that some of my colleagues have to face in other countries. And it sounds as, as if, at least in the Fourth Circuit, debate and disagreement can occur with respect. With respect and collegiality, and in some instances, just 
just affection. I have a colleague um, I will occasionally say to, well, let's, let's just settle this by arm wrestling. <laughs> and he always demurs because he said, that's a no win for me. I'm supposed to win, but you probably will. And what will that look like? You know, the award you're getting from the uh, Chief Justice's Professionalism Committee uh, has a variety of criteria. And one of the criteria uh, said that um, the recipient of the award um, should acknowledge the good that can be accomplished by lawyers who have applied intellectual honesty, compassion, and practical skills in the practice of law. And certainly all three of those things apply to you. Would you comment on what professionalism means to you? Professionalism means aspiring to the highest aspirations of the profession, to, to, to work as hard as we can for the good of our clients, to attempt to elevate the standards of the profession, and to treat everyone with whom we come in contact with dignity and respect. And I think John Hope did that in his profession. The lawyers that I admire, Don Cowan, you, and others have done that. Uh, and that's what I hope to do. I would say one thing. I appreciate this award very much. I often feel that I am done far too much credit and that a large part of any success I have enjoyed has been the result of serendipity. You've been listening to All Things Judicial, a podcast from the North Carolina Judicial Branch. You can find out more about the Judicial Branch by visiting nccourts.gov. If you like our podcast, please share it with a friend and give it a five-star rating and review. Your help is essential to sharing the important work of the Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office, and I'm reminding you to keep all things judicial. Thanks for listening.